Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Happy fall. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for hanging out today. Hey, I just wanted to take a second to say thank you. Thanks for seeking light. Thanks for seeking to have God more present in your life. I know that that sometimes it can be a grind and and it may feel like things aren't fitting. But I'm telling you right now that your father is proud of you. Trust that. It's the gospel truth. Keep it up. Anyway, today we're going to look at like 12 of Paul's letters. Okay, it's just four, but it's still a little bit of ground to cover. We're going to look at two letters to Timothy, one to Titus and one to Philemon. So Timothy and Titus are both mission companions of Paul. Paul first meets Timothy while traveling through Lystra in Acts 16, and he's impressed with Timothy's mother and grandmother. Uh, They've raised Timothy upright, if you will. So after this, uh, Timothy becomes a trusted mission companion so that when Paul hears that things are going kind of rough in Ephesus, he sends Timothy, trusting that Timothy will be able to take care of business. Titus is similarly trusted uh, companion to Paul. And uh, you can hear Paul talk to, uh, about him in both Galatians and Corinthians. Now, kind of similar to the Ephesus situation, Paul hears that the church uh, situation on the island of Crete is also rough, so he sends Titus there to lead out. So all three of these letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are basically instruction manuals for leaders. It's kind of like when Moroni gets to the end of the Book of Mormon and dumps all sorts of logistical stuff out there for running the church. That's what these are kind of like. So let's start with why these two locations need special emissaries. Timothy is sent to Ephesus because there are some guys, two in particular, Alexander and Hymenaeus, who have infiltrated the church and are teaching that you shouldn't eat meat and that God forbids you to marry. They seem to have been particularly convincing to a group of young hot widows in Ephesus who are taking over the pulpit at church and kind of help spread these corrupt teachings and are treating church kind of like their own great and spacious building fashion show, all while accepting welfare from the church and spending their days gossiping. So this is why Paul says in this letter that women shouldn't teach in church. And when you come across this phrase in your study, don't be alarmed. Paul is speaking to a particular time and place. Paul works with women and commissions women in church leadership positions all the time. They're listed by name, Phoebe, Junia, Priscilla, Chloe, Eunice, Lois, etc. So uh, additionally, so, so just don't stress about this. Paul, Paul is speaking to a specific time and place and anybody overgeneralizing this is a moron and then you just you don't do that, right? Additionally, Ephesus seems to have a group of older men who spend their days getting drunk, apparently just hammered day in and day out. So Timothy is also sent to kind of straighten things out with them. Now Titus is sent to Crete for similar reasons. Crete is a main seaport and should be a sweet base of operations for spreading the message of Christ, but it is also a rough neighborhood. Have you ever heard the phrase that that man is such a Cretan, referring to his rough, uncouth, savage behavior? Well, this idea of Cretans being treacherous, violent, and sexually immoral is old, 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 and seemingly well-founded. Paul even quotes in his letter the Cretan poet Epimenides, who wrote that Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
Also in Crete, church leadership seems to have been overrun by ethnically Jewish Christians who are demanding circumcision among all Christians and Torah observance. So Titus is sent to Crete to straighten things out. Now, Paul starts out his instructions to both these guys with a statement about uh, who God is. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time. Now, this is kind of a cool line, and it is particular uh, to this time and place. This idea that God doesn't lie is in direct contrast to what Cretans have traditionally believed it, uh, about God. See, they believe that Crete was the birthplace of Zeus, who was known for deception and seduction. He is ultimately unreliable. Paul is saying, let's start fresh from a solid base. God doesn't lie. And God is offering you the hope of eternal life and you can trust him on this. Here's, the tr- here's a trustworthy statement, um, Paul says in 1 Timothy, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Uh, and in Second Timothy, he continues this idea. He says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, for me, this is one of the most compelling messages I'm familiar with. It's powerful. It's full of hope. A being greater than us who does not lie gave himself for us, um, for us individuals that fall short, and therefore he opens up a way for us to light and happiness. Now, Paul says we need to represent uh, this message uh, of this divine being who gives himself. We need to represent this well as leaders in the church. As far as leaders go, in these three letters, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, he mentions two sort of leadership offices. He he lists the office of bishop and deacons. Now, these aren't exactly like how we use these terms uh, in modern times. Um, These offices uh, in the restored church have have evolved over time to best fit the needs of the modern church. And if you want to review a history of that, you can check out the the podcast we did in the Doctrine and Covenants section about it. Anyway, bishop here means overseer. And usually that means over a Christian community in one city. Deacon means servant. And in this context, it was applied to both men and women who were serving the needs of the church members. So here Paul is basically giving direction for how to serve effectively in the church. So it starts with love, Paul says, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. From there, all the other characteristics are simply an outgrowth of love. He goes on to say, here's a trustworthy saying, whosoever aspires to be a bishop or an overseer, 
This will apply in many ways, his instructions here to like Relief Society presidents as well as elders quorum presidents as well as bishops. Is anybody leading out in the church, right? He says, here's a trustworthy stain. Uh, whoever wants to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to, to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must um, do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he care for the church? Now, don't take that one too far. Uh, here's the truth. We're all our own special sort of messed up in our families, but we're all trying. And if you are trying, then good. Let's keep going. He keeps on going. An overseer must not be a recent convert. He may, he may be, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. It seems like a pretty good list. And basically, if you're going to be a leader in the church, just try and be good. Likewise, he goes on to talk about deacons. And here in the Greek, he's talking less about the priesthood office and more about anyone who is trying to help the overseer or the bishop. Um, so his counsel here is going to apply equally to the primary president as it's going to be applied to a Sunday school teacher or a clerk. That's what the kind of the phrase deacon is, is meaning here. So here's what he says about serving in the church. Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, must keep a hold of deep truths of the faith with clear conscience. They must first be tested and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. To women leaders, he counsels them not to be malicious talkers, meaning to use language to tear down or to gossip. Unlike overseers or bishops, presidents, those serving in service callings, deacons, should have a good family life. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and manage his children and his household well. Overall, basically, he needs to be or she needs to be an example of the believers in speech and conduct and love, faith, and purity. Additionally, he says that those serving in the church need to learn the skill of correcting without quarreling, correcting without fighting. This is a difficult skill to get. He says the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome. They must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, Opponents must be gently instructed. He must hold firm to the trustworthy messages as he has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting the whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. You, however, must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine, but avoid foolish controversies. So, like, th this sort of idea, like, let's say somebody is teaching something wrong. He's like, as a leader, whether it's you as a parent or as a young women's leader or a Sunday school teacher, you need to find a way to correct false doctrine without being quarrelsome. To be like, hey, I see where you're coming from. Have you considered this? 
um, to be able to understand somebody and to be able to talk to them on their level and not just be like, you're wrong. This is how it is. Like Paul is saying, you've got to be able to be um, more subtle. You've got to be able to avoid stupid controversy, to remember that people are more important than, than anything else. But at the same time, that does not give you an excuse to just say, well, I love people and I'm not going to cause controversy, so I'm not going to say anything. He's like, no, that's cheap. That's stupid. And what you do as a good leader is you are both kind to individuals and true to doctrine. It is not either or, it's and. We both love individuals and we, we hold true to, to truth right there. It, it, it's a difficult, tricky, hard thing, and we're not going to hit it out of the park every single time. But that's going to be the standard as leaders that we strive for there. Additionally, Paul says that you're never too young to start learning good leadership patterns. He says uh, to Titus, he says, urge the younger women to love their families, to be self-controlled and pure, and to be busy at home and to be kind. Similarly, encourage young men to be self-controlled, to show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, uh, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And so basically, if I can restate the model of leadership that, that Paul's trying to show here, is that we as Christians are to be the agents of transformation in the world, Okay. He's like, I want you to lead out in doing good. And we don't do this through culture wars. We don't do this uh, by posting how somebody is so wrong on Facebook. We don't do this by polarizing or opposing. Um, oh, and likewise, we don't do this through assimilation, just adopting everything the world is saying. Both of these extremes are to be avoided. Paul is instead advocating full participation in the world and through that full participation to bring light and love and redemption of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what it means to be a leader in this church, either as a deacon or as a bishop, as a servant or an overseer, a president or an assistant. The, the standard is the same. We get out there and we participate, we do good, we avoid fighting, but we stand true to, to truth, okay? We find that delicate, tricky balance, and we do our very best to seek to spread the love and redemption of Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate mission. Our ultimate mission is not to be right. Our ultimate mission is to bring light. It's a different stance. And I think I see this all the time in leadership. Right now, I teach primary. It's like the best calling ever. And I see this pattern of leadership in my partner teacher. He is always so well prepared with activities that make the five-year-olds in our class just light up. He lifts them. That's what it means to be a leader in the church. It's like my son's activity days leaders that, that help them to build rockets. They do things that are just engaged. They just don't send it in. They don't mail it in. They, they show up and they do interesting things that bring light. Like building rockets is bringing the light of Jesus Christ there. It's being a true Christian leader. It's just being there for people and spreading the love of Jesus Christ. Don't worry that you're not doing it right. Don't worry that you're not doing enough in your calling. You're probably not. 
But just remember that when you're feeling that, that God has not given us the spirit of fear. And so if you're feeling that, that's not of God. If you're feeling inadequate, if you're feeling enough, not enough, that is not God. God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but be partakers of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and his grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the leadership pattern right here. Uh, To cast out fear and invite light. To do everything possible to lift, to build, and to minister. That's what we're about. So whether your calling is as bishop, stake president, or, or as primary activity days leader, or ministering supervisor, how will you cast out fear and invite light? That's it. I like that. I think that's solid. It's good principles that Paul is teaching us here. Now, following this leadership session of letters, Paul also writes a letter to a guy named Philemon. And now Philemon is a well-to-do Roman from Colossae um, who most likely met Paul in Ephesus and becomes a Christian after this interaction. Now, Philemon is a slave owner, which is completely common for the time period. And one of his slaves is a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away and in the process does Philemon dirty in some way that is not written down. Maybe he steals or something, we just don't know. Following his escape, Onesimus becomes a Christian and actually becomes a great partner to Paul and a much needed help to him while he's stuck in prison. So Paul has these two guys, Philemon and Onesimus, that he loves both of them and they both have a beef with one another. Uh, And so Paul writes this brief letter and it is a straight up masterpiece on forgiveness and Christianity. It starts like this. Dear Philemon, my friend, my fellow worker, I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your partnership with me in faith may be effective in deepening your understanding in every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love, Philemon, has given me great joy and encouragement. Because of you, brother, uh, you have refreshed the hearts of the Lord people. Then he says, okay, here's Onesimus. Now, Paul has actually sent Onesimus back to Philemon. So he's standing right there, basically. And Paul says in the letter, I'm not going to be so bold as to tell you what to do here, but instead I appeal to you on the basis of love for my son Onesimus. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing uh, writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me for your very self. I think this is just a powerful metaphor for us. 
I love how Paul intercedes and says, I want you to lay any debt Onesimus has, Philemon. I want you to lay any debt of Onesimus to my account. But when you do lay that debt on my account, remember that you owe me your salvation. Uh, If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't know about the gospel. Like basically Jesus does the same thing here. There are people who have done us wrong and Christ steps in and literally takes their wrongdoing on his account. Then he asks us to let it go, reminding us that we owe him everything. In this sense, since Jesus owns those sins now, he can turn to us and ask us to forgive him. He literally stands in the middle between us and the people who have done us wrong and says, I now own this sin. Will you forgive me? And when we do forgive him, he then provides for us everything we need. Uh, this, is, this is amazing. This is amazing. Paul is standing in between Philemon and Onesimus and says, Philemon, Onesimus did you wrong? Probably Onesimus Philemon did you wrong too. Let me own this. Let me stand between you. I will pay you both back. Will you let it go? Jesus says the same thing to us as he stands in between. I own this. Put it on my account. Forgive me. Let it go. It's a short letter, but I think it illustrates so much of what the gospel actually is. We get so caught up in justice and fairness, cause and effect, deserving, but that's not what Jesus is all about. He is about expansiveness and freedom, undeserved grace and power. When you forgive, and you have good reason to forgive because what Jesus has done for you, But when you let go of your own free will, you're godlike. You are participating in the expansive, creative sphere of our Father. You come to know His nature more in that moment than maybe any other act. It is the ultimate gift of faith to trust God and to cease to be your own mini-God seeking to hand out wrath and consequences. Try it. Do the mental work to let it go and trust Jesus to take care of it. Now, honestly, I could share a cool story here of someone who went through something big and let it go. And I thought about it. But I don't need you to forgive something big right here. I just want you to forgive something little. Next time you feel angry, take it as an invitation and then decide. Do I want to be a fake tyrant God here or do I trust Jesus? If you choose faith in Christ, then recognize that he has taken this moment of anger upon himself and trust it to him. This doesn't mean you do not act. It means that you act without the fear that someone is getting away with something. You act and have no expectation for the outcome of justice. You just trust and see what happens. It's honestly a pretty amazing way to live. Try it. It's an adventure. Be curious about how it will work when you no longer are the mini-god stomping around trying to make things right, but instead the high priest of good things to come, the prince of peace is ruling your life. Trust him.
Trust him today. The next time today you feel irritated, you feel stuck, you feel angry, make the conscious decision to let it pass through you and to him. Let go of it. And then move forward with him at the helm. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.